1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome back for Easter morning. We are kind of in the middle of a very short two-part series called Christus Victor, which means Christ the Victor. And that's what we celebrate on this morning of all mornings, that Jesus like literally walked out of his own tomb. That's what we as Christians believe. And that in doing so, he had the final victory over death. And even though your tomorrow may not feel practically that different than any other day, than last Monday, this hope that we can claim, this hope that we can know and have assurance of is that Jesus has won for us. Um, So what's at stake in Easter? If the story is good enough to inspire over a billion people in the world, does it really matter if it is factually, historically true? Does it matter if Jesus actually rose from the dead? And you will often hear in a sports career or some kind of entertainment career, maybe even business, this resurrection metaphor of someone like someone has resurrected their career and they've come back and it's kind of this euphemism for a fresh start and a second chance. And just a couple blocks over, you know, the Rockies will take the field at one o'clock this afternoon and they'll say like this closer that kind of flamed out with the Boston Red Sox is now here and he's resurrected his career in Denver. And I think, like, is that, is that okay that we have this metaphor for, like, a fresh start and a new beginning and kind of a second lease on life or a career? And this morning we want to examine that question as well as a couple others. So uh, because of Christus Victor, I'm going to kind of hang this short outline on three V words this morning. So we're going to ask ourselves, how vital is the resurrection? So as we we gather from week to week, how important is it, how crucial is it that these things actually happened? And then the second question will be, how, how verifiable is the resurrection? How true are these events? And again, does it even matter? And then thirdly, if we believe that these things are true, how victorious is this resurrection for you and for me? Not just for Jesus doing this as if he did it for himself, But how victorious is this for us? So um, I direct your attention to verse 3 of this text. And 1 Corinthians is a very long chapter. It's like the famous chapter on resurrection. Not only what happened with Jesus, but what the Apostle Paul says will happen with all of those who put their faith in Jesus. And I want you to notice that in in verse 3, Paul is talking about the core life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ And he says this, these things are of first importance. 
And he uses a word protos that means first in rank, first in prominence, first in importance. He's saying these are core doctrines and without the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, he's literally saying we do not have Christianity. We do not have a faith system without these three events. So I want you to get this. If Jesus lived exactly the life that he lived. He taught exactly what he taught. He did every single miracle that he did. And he died and went in the ground. And that was the end of the Jesus story. We would have nothing more than something like the Elijah story or the Elisha story of a prophet sent from God with important words, words of wisdom, words of truth, words of justice, words of mercy. But we would always know that was mixed with, at the very least, a question mark, if not actual blasphemy. Because Jesus claimed to be God and the Son of God. He claimed to have the authority to overcome death. And if he went in the grave and we have broken promises and outright lies, we would not be gathered on this morning or any morning worshiping someone named Jesus as a part of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So how important is the resurrection? To, to summarize what Edith just read for us in verses 12 through 19, the apostle is going to say something like this. He says, if Christ came back from the dead, if that is true, then there is a resurrection. And we can talk now about a more general resurrection if Jesus was raised. But the, the inverse of that, starting in verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection then you can't say that Christ was raised on Easter morning. You can't say he came back from the dead. And this is so important. He goes on to say, Therefore, the Christian faith is completely empty and foolish. It is devoid of its power. Like we might as well go to brunch on Easter morning and do something meaningful with friends and family because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he says, your faith is completely empty. And then he says, Therefore, you are still trapped in your sins. You have no solution to overcome the things that you and I have done and failed to do. And he goes on to say, therefore, there is no hope in death. Therefore, Christians are the most pitiable people because you wasted your life believing a lie. You made sacrifices in real time. It cost you something to walk around this world with that belief, living for Jesus. What a pity. But I want you to follow the logic of what he's saying Notice he says, if there is no resurrection, then this is true, and this is true, and this is true, and this is true. But the logic is, what he's actually saying is, if the resurrection is true, then your faith is not characterized by emptiness and futility and vanity and ignorance. Your faith is characterized by fullness and wisdom. The Christian faith is characterized by completeness, restoration. He says, then you have been liberated from your sins. Then there is hope in death. Because you yourself will rise to eternal life. And then I would have to conclude that Christians are not the most pitiable. We are in fact the most enviable because we have committed to live our lives for the one God who is in fact worthy of our worship and praise. That he's worthy of our everything. And by the way, I want to pause there and I'm going to say, isn't it just fascinating that the most important core beliefs of the Christian faith of Christianity revolve around the death and resurrection of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived and died in first century Israel. 
And I want you to just understand for a moment how completely unique that is. No other religion in the world that I'm aware of, no other systematized faith is dependent upon what its founder either did or did not do for you. Like you can follow the the karmic tradition of Hinduism. You can follow the eightfold path of Buddhism. You can follow the five pillars of Islam. You can follow the basic tenets even of secular humanism. You can follow your own thoughts and beliefs around atheism. But, and, and those are doctrines to believe. Each of them have doctrines to believe. Each of them have rules to follow for the good life. But none of those other worldviews are dependent on historic events that either happened or did not happen. It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that founder did or did not do, and they certainly didn't even claim to do something for you that has eternal consequences. So I say this often because I think it's important. No religion is more falsifiable than Christianity, but also no religion is more verifiable because no other religion will basically say, look, consider for yourself the evidence And I'm talking about things that happened in plain sight in front of hundreds or thousands of people that were documented by many, many eyewitnesses and say, look, touch, listen, examine the evidence for yourself. Which brings us to the second question, how verifiable is the resurrection? Okay, so if Paul is going to say this is core belief, this is core truth, this changes everything. Everything. This is not just another thing in Scripture to believe. This is the whole thing. Everything hinges on whether Jesus came back or not. So how verifiable is it? And I think every skeptic, every sinner, uh, uh, well, every sinner as well, every cynic, you owe it to yourself to at least examine the evidence and say, like, what's more plausible here? And I just begin with the fact that no serious historian does not agree that this Jesus, this particular Jesus, a man raised in Nazareth of Galilee, that he actually lived and died in first century Israel. Do you know there are, there are more and older manuscript evidences for the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth than there are for Julius Caesar? Okay, and think about that. Julius Caesar was the emperor of the most powerful empire on earth, living in basically the capital city of the world, Jesus of Nazareth was a Jewish carpenter. And one of them, his life and his actions is, what I say, not not better attested, but it has more attestation and it has much older attestation in manuscripts. And I think a fair question really is, why was Jesus' life documented at all? Who writes stories about a nobody from no town? Nazareth, even to the Jewish people, was like, nobody's from Nazareth. It's like when one of the disciples first met Jesus and is like, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Is what they're thinking. It's just like, that's, that's just a nowheresville. Like, what are we talking about? Why is this story written down? And, uh, you know, s- skeptics will answer this and say, well, it was documented because this group of people living in the first century actually wrote myths and legends about this person who didn't even exist, who didn't even do these things because they were trying to start a new religion in the first century. And I just think that takes a lot of faith to believe. It takes a lot of faith to believe that, that 12 guys who are like fishermen and tax collectors and former Pharisees and zealots all got together and was like, let's invent a story. 
Because first of all, if you know what those guys believe, those, those people would have never gotten along. Like a zealot, that's someone who wants to overthrow the government. A Pharisee is a religious leader that's like, please don't overthrow the government because I got a pretty sweet spot. I got a pretty sweet setup. Like it's not great that we're under Roman rule, but as far as things go, I have it pretty good. How are those people friends? How is a zealot a friend of a tax collector who's working for the very government that he's trying to overthrow and is in fact a traitor of his own people? Who writes this stuff unless it's true? Who makes up this kind of stuff unless it's true? By the way, how do they get away with so many lies when there are real names and real places and real dates mentioned in these books talking about actual historic events that happened in plain sight? How do you get away with making that up when you could just go to Simon and you could go to Simeon and you could go to Nicodemus and you could go to all these people and say, did that really happen? And they could say, no, it didn't happen. Or they could say, yes, it did. Why do they paint themselves in such a bad light? If you're trying to get a new religion off the ground, why do you say of yourself basically like, yeah, we were all buffoons. We fought all the time. Like Jesus had just gotten done teaching about true love and true humility and then we had a big fight about which of us was the greatest. Um, but anyway, you should follow us because we're starting a new religion. Like, I mean, it's something to wrestle with. And I think too, like, what, what motive could have possibly led the disciples to concoct stories, not a story, but many, many, many stories about a false Jewish Messiah when all of these men lived under the religion known as Judaism, traditional Jewish religion. And if you are in fact making this up, you have forfeited your own salvation because you're a blasphemer. And to blaspheme God means you're not on right terms with God. Nevertheless, they wrote these things down. Worst of all, they all went on, or almost all of them went on to die martyrs' deaths. And you may know there's a difference between dying for something that you think is true and dying for something that you know is a lie because you're the one that made it up. So we've got to wrestle with some of this. And I'll say I'm not here this morning to prove to you that the resurrection happened because I don't, I don't think we can prove that. I'm just asking us to consider the evidence as we would do in court and say, what is the most likely explanation? What is the most reasonable explanation? What, what kind of passes the beyond reasonable doubt test? And when we come specifically to the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter morning, let me just share a few things. I think it's important to know that not only does the Bible say that Jesus rose from the dead, but there are actually prophecies from 600 or 1,000 years earlier written down and attested to be that much older than this story. So the idea is that, that Jesus didn't just die and rise from the dead. It was prophesied in very specific detail many years earlier. So one line of evidence is simply fulfilled prophecy. Um, two, we come to that, that tomb in the garden on Easter morning, and as we just read in the Matthew story, that tomb was under a Roman guard. And yet by the time a couple women got there to anoint the body with just more spices as the body begins to decay, the Bible says they and then some of the disciples find the grave closer there, the stone is rolled away. And we come up with theories today like, well, the disciples came back and stole the body to create this myth that people would follow this legend, this new religion, um, it, which, of course, you have to answer, like, how did the disciples get past the guards and all that when they know, like, we'll get executed if this prisoner gets out because he's a dead body and he's a rabble rouser. He's, like, starting a religion. He's causing problems. 
And uh, if the disciples did steal the body, why did they take time on site to like unwrap his body and leave his clothes and ostensibly take a naked body with them? And you get things to wrestle with. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll notice in verses 5 and 6 that as Paul is talking about this, he says, after Jesus died and after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the disciples, to the now 11, because Judas has gone off and hung himself. But then it says, and then to more than 500 people at once. So what he's saying is that this wasn't a dream that Jesus came back. It wasn't even a vision because you don't have group visions. This wasn't like an apparition or a ghost because the Jesus that comes back is like, touch me, listen to me, eat with me. Like, look that these are the fatal wounds of a Roman cross. And like, if, if one of them, Thomas, is not there when I present myself to the disciples, I'm going to especially appear to him so that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt because he's touched me and seen and put his hands in my side and in my hands. So some people today will say, well, the, the disciples were just, they were gullible. They were predisposed to believe in a resurrection. And so that, that's why they, they thought they were seeing something that they wanted to see. Well, I would say that's hardly true because on that Easter morning, if you read the full accounts, and we read one of them from Matthew this morning, you'll notice none of the, none of the male disciples went to the tomb. In other words, not a single one of them thought the resurrection was even possibly true just to go check it out to see if there's a 1% chance that Jesus comes back. None of them went. They were, they were locked behind closed doors. They were terrified and despondent because of the crucifixion. All the disciples thought this is the end. And again, that's not the kind of thing you write about yourself like, hey, we want you all to believe in Jesus. We didn't, but you should. But, but that's kind of the story they're telling. It's saying we didn't think it was possible for Jesus to come back. So did you notice who did go is like a couple women named Mary. That the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women who at this time in this culture, a very patriarchal and misogynist culture, the, women, the, the testimony of women was inadmissible in court. So why would you make up that detail of like none of the males can attest for this, but the, the women... Like, they could tell you this really happened. And we start putting these things together, and it's evidence for the fact that, that something really happened on that morning that different people are telling different parts of this eyewitness account or interaction with the living Jesus. By the way, even after the fact, you look at the, the reality that all of the disciples suddenly and dramatically changed course. And I mean changed course with their lives. That one moment they're hiding behind locked doors and they're like, we're next. They're going to kill us. They're going to come for us because we're identified with this crucified Jewish rabbi. And then all of a sudden, within days, literally days, they become this courageous, unstoppable force out in Jerusalem talking to the very people who put Jesus to death and they're saying, he is risen, he is Lord, he is Savior, he is Messiah, he is King of the world. Everyone needs to repent, turn from their sin and their false beliefs and turn to this Jesus and be saved. And the authorities are like, look, you're facing very serious charges of blasphemy and sedition unless you stop talking about this Jesus. And they continued on. And as I said, most of them finally enduring some kind of martyrdom because they believed what they had seen. So what is the most plausible explanation of all these different data points? What's, what's most reasonable to conclude? And I just look at verse 20 
where again, in what we read this morning, Paul's saying either he did raise from the dead and these things are true or he didn't and these things are true. And verse 20, he concludes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then for the balance of this message, for this final point, I'm going to assume that this statement is true. Okay, I'm going to assume that the resurrection is of primary importance to our faith as Christians. And what I want to do with you from this text is explore for a few minutes, why is the resurrection this important to Christians? Like, what did Jesus accomplish in his resurrection that makes it, that event, the centerpiece of our faith, our worship? What makes this a Christus Victor theme where we're like, yes, Jesus won, and our hope is in him. So thirdly, how victorious is the resurrection? Let me first direct your attention to verses 24 through 26. So Paul has been talking about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then he says this, then comes the end when he, so that is when Jesus delivers the kingdom up to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I pause there for just a second and say, who are these rulers and authorities and powers? Who are these enemies that Jesus is destroying? And we talked about some of this a couple nights ago on Good Friday, but it's worth repeating that, that the whole story is like this. God, God made you, okay? He made you in his image. He made you defines your identity, your satisfaction, your joy, your delight. All of that was meant to be found in relationship with God. That's the beginning of the story. But then Satan the adversary of God walks into the story and he rebels and then he makes it his life's mission to destroy humanity. Like just tempt humanity like crazy. Tempt them with all, all kinds of good things. and Like they don't have to be bad things and ugly things and awful things. He's just like, take these good things and make them ultimate things. Worship them, love them, serve them in place of serving and worshiping and loving God. And this is what Satan is doing in the Garden of Eden, disguised as a serpent with Adam and Eve. And what Paul is referring to here in these verses when he talks about rules and authorities and powers and enemies that need to be uh, not, not sidelined, not put in timeout, they need to be destroyed. He's talking about Satan and his minions. Okay? What he's saying is there is this kingdom where the king is Jesus. The rule and dominion, the authority, the worship, all of that belongs to Jesus. But he says, but there's another kingdom, the kingdom of darkness a kingdom of sin, a kingdom of death. And these two kingdoms are, are battling it out all throughout human history. They're battling it out. And where God is light, Satan loves darkness. Where God is good, Satan and his minions love evil. Where God is wisdom, Satan and his minions love ignorance. Where God is life, Satan and his minions love death. And so, left to ourselves, we talked about this on Good Friday, just, just left to ourselves, we all sin. We're all bound by the power of the evil one. We live, in a sense, as citizens of his kingdom, not God's kingdom. We're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to idolatry. And so we're condemned to die. And we can't free ourselves. But, but this is the whole point of the Jesus story, is that God in his mercy, seeing that we could not break the power of that 
evil kingdom over us. We, we cannot separate ourselves from its dominion over us. We can't just overcome it by our best thoughts, our best obedience, our best worshipful sacrifices to God. So God in his mercy and in the person of Jesus came, like literally came to this earth to save us. And when Jesus went to a cross, we talked about the other night that on that cross, as passive as that looks, just laying down his life, like not kicking and screaming, but voluntarily saying, not my will, Father, but yours be done. As passive as that looks to the naked eye, make no mistake, Jesus is doing battle on that night. He is doing battle with the serpent and the serpent is, is nipping at his heel and biting his heel and injecting that serious pain and that poison of our sin. But Jesus ultimately, even on Friday night, is going to be victorious by crushing the head of the serpent. And on Friday night, we reflected that the weapon of Satan is death. Okay, that's, that's all he's got of just like, if, if I can get you to sin somehow, if I can tempt you and lead you astray, and you break the law, then the law's demand is that you die and that death means you are separated forever from the God who loves you, from the God who made you in his image. And then I win because I hate God. And this is Satan speaking. I hate God so much. I live to separate everyone from his love. But we talked Friday night about the fact that Satan apparently never accounted for the fact that this curse of sin and the curse of death that that curse could be broken, in fact, is broken, if an innocent party, a sinless party, a spotless Passover lamb goes and takes the punishment. It breaks the curse. It puts death to death. And that curse no longer has any reign or authority over our lives. And I was talking with a friend after the service, and a couple of you noticed this. They're like, man, I never really saw this, that, that really then all of Holy Weekend was like this whole series of victories for Jesus, where Jesus is taking the law and he's just making an open mockery of the claim of Satan and demons to put you to death, to control your life, to run you away from the Lord. He's putting that to death. And then we come to this Easter morning and look at these climactic verses toward the end of this chapter. I'll begin the end of verse 53 where you see he's quoting something from the Old Testament and he says this, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's very important to understand the logic of what he's saying. So let me explain this, and then we'll be done. It is one thing to claim Jesus defeated sin and Jesus defeated Satan and Jesus defeated death. It's another thing to demonstrate the validity of that claim. So let's look at a couple of phrases here. First of all, where he says, the sting of death is sin. And many times we just simply read that as the sting is death. And if you've had loved ones who have passed away, like I'm not here to deny the fact that there is a sting in death. There is a pain in death. And even if those loved ones have faith in Christ and you believe they've gone on to be with the Lord, there's still a sting, there's still a pain, an emptiness, an excruciating hurt for you who are left without that loved one, that family member, that friend. But that's not the point here. The point is not that death is a sting, it hurts. 
you look back at the verse, and, and, and sometimes to understand Scripture, what I do is I, you're looking at a long phrase, and sometimes it helps to, like, chop out some middle words and then say, like, what is, what is that saying? Then put those words back. So we read here, the sting of death is sin. If you simply take out of death, you have the sting is sin. The sting is sin. Okay, so I'm inviting you, he's inviting you to think about the sting of a wasp or a scorpion or a bullet ant or something, okay? Because that's, that's what the metaphor is here. That's the analogy. Um, the boys, like, have this show that is very hard for me to watch. Um, there's this guy named Coyote Peterson that films videos of himself, like, finding the most painful stinging creatures in the entire animal kingdom, and then he, he tracks that creature down, whatever it is, and then he provokes it to sting him, and then he video records what happens to him as he has like this colossal meltdown and excruciating pain, and uh, we, we know like there's, you know, intense swelling. Sometimes he's experienced like partial paralysis. I'm always afraid the guy's going to die, and, and my little boy's just love watching this stuff for some reason. But like th- this, this is the analogy that's being used here is he's like, think about when that creature stings you. And just like that, bam, in that instant, that wasp or scorpion or ant has injected a cocktail of venom, a poison into your bloodstream. And you inevitably begin to experience these things like instantly that excruciating pain which can go on and on and on for hours or with some of the things this guy has let sting him for days. That paralysis, in severe cases, death. And the point here is, you notice, death doesn't produce the sting. The sting produces death. And so you follow the argument of what Paul is saying here, and he's saying the sting is sin. The sting is sin. So, so when we sin, whether by commission or by omission, whether it's something we said, something we did, an attitude, an emotion that is displeasing to God, he says you're being injected with this deadly venom, this poison. And of course that poison always leads to or produces death. So it's this simple. Why do we all die? Because we all sin. And when we sin, the stinger goes in and we're injected with something that we can't survive. Okay, that's the first phrase when he says the sting of death is sin. But then he goes on to say the power of sin is the law. And again, removing a couple words, he's saying the power is the law. The power is the law. And I'm thinking, in what sense does the law have power? And, and many people, religious people, I think often well-intentioned people are thinking, well, the, the power has a law to, uh, to stop sin and, and to correct us. And in fact, the Bible says the opposite. The, like Paul's just like, the law can't prevent you from sinning. Like, how many of you, you, you know laws, like, don't do this, and that in and of itself, and even knowing that the law says that, does not prevent you from breaking the law. It doesn't. Like, we need a gospel. We need a good news to transform our hearts, because the, the gospel can stop sin, but the law has no power to stop sin. Let me just share two things that the law does have power to do. One, the law has power to raise our curiosity and to actually provoke sin, do you know the, the law can make you worse than you were before if you didn't have the law? It can. And Paul even uses this illustration elsewhere where he's like, I didn't even know what it was to covet. I didn't realize that like simply wanting something nice that someone else had, I didn't realize that was sin until I read the law 
And, and this thing came alive in me of like, oh, you can't covet either. And he's like, and then I died. Because the law told me something I didn't even know. This happens all the time. I do this right out here. Um, right this long rail right out here outside the building. And you can stand out there and uh, you can just watch people walk by on the sidewalk. And most people just walk by on the sidewalk. Just walk by all day long. Just walk by back and forth, going to the coffee shop, coming here, just passing by for all kinds of reasons. Um, but what you, what, what's fun is just simply put a wet paint sign on the rail. And do you know how many people stop and touch it just to see if it's wet? It's, it's mind-boggling, but it's a fascinating study in human nature and how we love to interact with the law. Or I'll give you another example. How many times have you, like in Colorado, you're like on a Jeep trail or you're hiking with friends or something like that, and, and you kind of have an idea of like we're going, we're following this main trail, and here's where we're going. And you're like walking through the woods, and all of a sudden you see like this little trail goes off over here, and it's like absolutely no trespassing. Do not come down here for the views. And you're like, what views? <laughs> like, that's interesting. And we're off and running. And, and the Bible says that the law has this power to raise our curiosity and to actually provoke more sin in us. But the law does something else too. The Bible says the law has the power to define sin, to expose sin, and to convict us of sin. You know, the Paul example again, where he's like, the, the law defined covetousness. And then the law exposed that kind of attitude in my heart. I'm not content with what God gives me. I'm not satisfied with his good gifts to me. I want what other people have and I don't. And what the law is doing there is it defining sin, but it's also exposing sin. It's convicting of sin. So my wife's car, I've, I've shared this with, with a few of you, but my wife's car, this Volvo, has these magic and, and also terrible, horrible cameras. I don't even know where they are. But as you're driving down the road at, at even highway speed, these cameras are reading speed limit signs for you. So you may not see the sign, but the car sees the signs. And then it puts that speed limit in the middle of your dashboard for you. So it's changing all the time as you go through different traffic zones. It's, it's slowing up, it's speeding down, but it's telling you this is the speed limit here, okay? So I can be blissfully unaware of the speed limit because I'm just going at the speed that feels right to me, good and right, <laughs> you know? And uh, not only does her car see the law, but that thing starts blinking when you're like five miles an hour over that speed limit. It starts blinking at you. You're probably wondering how I know this because I'm a sinner. Um, so this, this, this speed limit sign in the middle starts blinking at you at a certain speed. And then at a certain even higher speed, it, it starts making a sound like, warning, warning, you're a sinner. We're going to tell everyone else in the car you're a sinner. And now my boys like from the back seat are like, they're like leaning around like, how fast were you going? And, and the point of all that is, like, this, the Bible says this is the way the law functions. That, like, you, you can be blissfully unaware of the law. You can, you can ignore the law. But it's still defining this is right, this is wrong. It's still exposing your sin. And it's still convicting you. And the cop will not be like, when I get pulled over for going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit... He's not going to be like, oh, you felt like that was a safe speed. Totally cool. Or, oh, you didn't see the sign, but your car did. No big deal. No, like, 
I would have a huge problem with the law because I broke the law, okay? Now, let me just put that back together and I'm done. Here's what Paul is saying in these incredible verses when he's saying the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So this, this is what Christus victor means. So take this with you, okay? Christ triumphed over death on this weekend 2,000 years ago. And again, as Christians, we believe that as fact. How did he triumph over death? Four ways. Not, not one way, four ways. Number one, Christ triumphed over death by satisfying the demands of the law for justice. Okay, so the law, the law is against you, the law is against me. Why? Because I've broken the law. Okay, the law can be for you, for you, for you, for you, for you, because you're obeying it until the moment you disobey it, and then you're a lawbreaker, and the law is actually against you, and the law demands justice. It's like, thou shalt not kill, and you kill, and the just thing then for the law to say is you are, you are condemned of killing, or obviously something lesser than killing, but the law stands against you. And the first way that Jesus has victory over death is that he satisfies the demands of the law for justice. And Colossians 3 actually says he takes the handwriting of ordinances that was against you, which is a fancy way of saying like a, a legal record of every law that you broke and he nails it to his own cross. He says, okay, you, you did this, you did this, you failed to do all these things. Put it on my account. Put, put your failure on my account and I will triumph over the law's demands by meeting the law's demands in my own body. That's the first way Christ triumphed over death. Number two, Christ triumphed over death by absorbing in his own body the venom of our sin. I love the way that 1 Corinthians 15, so it's poignant for you. Not just Christ died for sins. That's powerful. But the idea is that stinger is going into his body over and over and over again for billions of people and, and trillions of sins. And the venom is being injected into him and all the, the punishment is coming down. All the curse is coming down on Jesus. And he's like, give me the sting. Give me the venom. Give me the pain in my body so that the, the sting of sin has no more claim over those who would trust me. So he satisfied the demands of the law. He absorbed in his own body the venom of our sin. Thirdly, he crushed the weaponry and thus the kingdom of Satan. Because if the weaponry of Satan is like, let's tempt people, then they will sin, then they have to die. And Jesus is like, except for that part about how if the innocent person dies, it breaks the curse of death. It, it undoes death. You no longer have that as a weapon because people who come to me and believe what I did for them, they will live forever. So death is broken. And I would say now, having done these three things, do you understand this? The law couldn't hold Jesus in the grave. Sin could not hold Jesus in the grave. And Satan could not hold Jesus in the grave. Because on Friday night, those three things were defeated. So I would say, and I've never really thought about this before, but it's almost like, of course Jesus had to rise from the dead. Because any authority, any other power, any other rule, according to this text, that could have held him there, he, he was victorious over all of them. He crushed all of them. He destroyed them. He killed them. He put death to death. And so on Sunday morning, we are doing this on the drive down. I was like, just, boys, just imagine yourself dead. And uh, that, that was a struggle for a few minutes because they were like, well, I can't because I've never been dead. And I was like, just imagine, okay? You're laying there. Your heart is not beating. You are not drawing breath. And then that first breath. And there's this Andrew Peterson song about, it's called His Heart Beats. 
of just that instant that his heart started to beat again and it just picked back up. And I'm saying like that was the inevitable culmination of victory because of what he did on Friday night, that he would get up Sunday morning, walk out of his own tomb. And this text says the first fruits of a new kind of resurrection, that all who put their faith in him, of course, we also will rise with him and spend eternity in joy and contentment with him because Jesus defeated everything, friends, that could ever defeat you. Christus victor. We live because Jesus lives.